I want to take a moment before the show to let all of you know about a new horror anthology that I just read and really enjoyed. The book is called Shredded, and uh, that title is a double entendre because this is a collection of body horror stories about sports and fitness. So double meaning of shredded there. Now, the stories are awesome. Uh, These include pieces about a murdery yoga cult, also why you really shouldn't use performance-enhancing drugs, and also why you definitely should wear a helmet. I really hope that someday we'll have an opportunity to cover at least one of the stories in Shredded over on Elder Sign someday, but until then, I hope that you'll grab a copy for yourself. I've put a link in the show notes to make that easy for you, but of course you can also order the book from your local bookshop. Again, the book is called Shredded, and I hope you grab a copy today. Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. Today we are talking about the Karen Russell novella Reeling for the Empire. This was originally published in 2012. And because it's a novella, this is going to be the first of two. This will be the episode where we recap the story for you. And then immediately after this, we will have an episode where we discuss the story as we usually do. Both of these episodes, this pair of episodes, been commissioned by one of our really, truly, supremely generous Patreon supporters, along with four others. We have already done Angela Carter's The Lady of the House of Love and Margaret Atwood's Lucis Naturae. This will kind of round out a series. That's something we'll talk about in the discussion episode. But before we get into talking about this story at all, we just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for commissioning this batch of episodes. These have all been really fun, really great stories. This one is no exception. And commissioned episodes are a big part of how we stay on the air and keep doing the regularly scheduled episodes. And we appreciate the support. Yeah, thank you so much. I've been uh, I've been wanting to pick up this Karen Russell collection, Vampires in the Lemon Grove, for ages, and I've you know held it in my hands and walked around a bookstore, and then ended up putting it back on the shelf because I you know shouldn't be buying books that week or whatever the case <laughs> may be. Uh, so I am so grateful to have this collection. So grateful to have the opportunity to read. Uh, this is the second story in the collection, and it is a stunner. I mean, this is a, just a great story. And uh, I don't know, maybe in the discussion, we'll talk about, you know, where on the spectrum of weird fiction this really falls and what's going on. But uh, my goodness, what a marvelous tale. And, and I'm so glad we were able to read it. This is, of course, the same supporter who's had us read Karen Russell before. We did her story, Black Corfu, I guess probably about a year, year and a half ago, something like that. And that's in a different collection, which means that we now have two collections of hers on the shelf. So this is a well that we will return to because, uh, you know, I don't think it's spoiling anything to say that, yeah, we really like Karen Russell. And we're so glad that this listener, this supporter has introduced us to her work. But uh, I don't know, without much more ado. Why don't we just get right into it? <laughs> yeah, right. We're just, we're praising the story before we've even said a thing about what it actually is. So yeah, let's, uh, let's do it the right way here first. So this story is, uh, it's a bit of historical fiction. It is set in Japan during the reign of the Emperor Meiji. And we get some information later that tells us that we're in the late 1870s at the earliest. Might be later than that, but that's the earliest it could possibly be. But the story is also a memoir. It is the first-person account of a young woman named Kitsune, who, 
as it turns out, is in fact reeling for the Empire, the title of the story. Now, as I was getting ready to read this story for the first time, I was thinking of reeling as dancing, as in like Scottish reel. The reason for that is that Finch and I read a book about a dancing giraffe together in which Scottish <laughs> reel is a thing. So that's just where my brain went. But no, that's not it at all. Reeling here in this case is textile production, not dancing. And since it's Japan, this story is going to be about the production of silk. But here's where the weird fiction comes in. Because Kitsune is not reeling the silk produced by silkworms. She's reeling silk that she herself is producing out of her own body. And here's what she writes. I'll put it bluntly. We are all becoming reelers. Some kind of hybrid creature. Part Kaiko, silkworm caterpillar, and part human female. Some of the older workers' faces are already quite covered with a coarse white fur. But my face and thighs stayed smooth for 20 days. In fact, I've only just begun to grow the white hair on my belly. During my first nights and days in the silk reeling factory, I was always shaking. I have never been a hysterical person, and so, at first, I misread these tremors as mere mood. I was in the clutches of a giddy sort of terror, I thought. Then the roiling feeling became solid. It was the thread, a color purling invisibly in my belly. Silk, yards and yards of thin color would soon be extracted from me by the machine. Russell is a real master in setting up and subverting our expectations as readers. And, you know, for instance, the reason why I'm saying that is because the story opens up with this line. Several of us claim to have been the daughters of samurai, but of course, there's no way for anyone to verify that now. So when I read this first sentence, what I think I'm getting, because I know so little about the history of Japan as our listeners will discover more and more as this episode continues, <laughs> you know, apart from reading about some Kurosawa movies is, uh, you know, I think I'm going to get some sort of female take on the samurai genre, which, you know, in our typical cultural representation or the way we receive this information is, you know, about the noble heroes of the 17th century in Japan, whose glory faded. And, you know, now there's maybe in this story, a secret organization of lady samurais who are going to defend a village or something. And then you just get sentence after sentence where maybe that could still be the case, but Russell creates some real cognitive dissonance and it, and it creates a real inability for the reader to continue to hold that view until we get the gut punch at the end of the section that you just read, Glenn, that, you know, what we're dealing with is exploitative industrialization and, you know, an early version of the way that globalization and global trade affected a, you know, very tumultuous transition in, in time in Japanese history. We're looking at, you know, from the downfall of the samurai at the end of Japan's feudal system to the transition of trading with the West and, and needing the Japanese economy under a new kind of rule, really under the adoption, the adoption of some capitalist principles, uh, you know, that th everything's changing in order to, in this story, uh, so that Japan can really trade with the West. And Silk was how Japan did this for a long time. But, you know, eventually this economic export collapsed as well. I think, you know, sometime between World War One and World War Two. So, I guess what I'm saying is how Russell opens the story with this line gets us thinking about what the story is about, but what the story could be about. But what we see instead is women who, because no one can challenge them or even wants to challenge them, make up stories about their past that also reflect for them a better time to be a Japanese woman. 
you know, especially if you can make up a story where you were a, a member of the ruling class or, you know, a famous artist or something. So this is already kind of a, a classical mode of tragedy, the high brought low. And these women are making up stories to emphasize the tragedy of their situation. And they've all fallen to the same level as we're going to find out, right? There are, are several women in this this factory. They're all turning into hybrid silkworm monsters. So they've all reached the same exact bottom. And part of their coping mechanism here is to hype up, to exaggerate how far they have actually fallen. Uh, though, of course, even the lowest of them has fallen pretty far to be actually transforming into a silkworm, to be transforming into a monster, right? But this is, I think, a pretty normal coping mechanism. This kind of reminded me, actually, of the way that we would swap stories in basic training, right? I think everybody's kind of exaggerating who they are and where they're from and what their <laughs> life was like. And you know everybody's doing that, right? This is sort of part of how you're, I don't know, testing boundaries and uh, thinking about your own circumstances here, right? That there's some some capital, uh, you know, social capital in having fallen a little bit further than than everybody else. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely the case. And so, yeah, to, to, to make it super clear, nobody's the daughter of a samurai here, right. <laughs> as we're going to figure out, right? And nobody, Kitsuno's the one who says her grandfather was a famous uh, woodblock carver whose art was displayed in uh, samurai estates and things like that. I mean, the samurai were really the the aristocratic class in, in Japan during this shogun era, during the Edo period, uh, leading up to the emperor stepping down and the massive transition to industrialization and globalization that uh, Japan went through in the uh, mid to late 19th century. So these women are really just saying, remember the past when things were good and we all came from good stock. But we're going to find out more about these women as the story continues. Yeah. So how this works here with the silk production is that these women who have become hybrid silkworm monsters work in a small, I said factory earlier, but I guess actually mill is technically what it is when you're dealing with textiles. So uh, it's a small mill. And right now there are about 20 workers and they all live together in the mill itself, which is a brick building. And they sleep crowded together on mats in the same room where they work. But Kitsune, at least Kitsune, it might be more of them, but Kitsune does not sleep very well because her body's process of creating the silk is uncomfortable and disturbing. So the mill here, this is a kind of prison. Uh, they're confined to this one room. All they know of the outside world is that sometimes there's a woodpecker out the window. But the question is, how did these women get here? Well, this mill is part of the Meiji government's effort to quickly industrialize Japan along the lines of or on the model of Europe and the United States. And so there is an agent, uh, that's with a capital A, who travels around Japan recruiting women to come work in this mill. Now, he does not talk to the women themselves. Uh, this world is, you know, it's not like ours, uh, but rather he talks with their male guardians. And the agent picks families with some kind of you know, debt or families that are, are, are worried about scraping together a, you know, a dowry to marry off their daughter. Essentially, you know, families in need of money who might be willing to send their daughter to a far off mill for a small salary, which is going to be paid not to the daughter, but to the family. And then when the contract has been signed, there's a tea ceremony to celebrate. Uh, in fact, there are two tea ceremonies. There's one with the family. And then later, 
There's another one held privately with the woman who is now going with him to the mill. And we're going to learn later that it's this second tea ceremony that begins the process of this physical, physiological transformation into a silkworm. This is a story that's really about metaphor about metamorphosis, about painful transition and and change. And all of these girls who become these silkworm monsters are from poor families, you know, in contrast to the way they talk about their past that we, that we just saw. And these girls kind of want to believe in the new imperial government and the promises that it offers them and their families. And they believe that they can support the Meiji Empire by taking on an imperial vocation. And they can help their families get out of debt and break out of the feudal world that had controlled their families' lives. They can help. And that's a core motivator for our narrator, at least. But it really doesn't take long to realize that both these girls and their families are just being exploited once again, but this time by a new system of economics and a new style of governing. I mean, you know, turning into a silkworm, I guess, will lead you to that realization, no matter who you are. You can just look at what happened to to Gregor Samsa. But, you know, the agent pitches this job, as you said, Glenn, to the fathers or the male guardians of these girls. But what we really see in the text and 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 what kind of leads to some of the, the difficulty of being in this situation for the girls in their subjective experience is that the agent is also really speaking to the hopes of the girls themselves. The empire needs them. There's a place for them. You know, the, our methods are better than what you've heard about the European way of making silk. We have a better way. Uh, you know, these girls are going to play a crucial role in Japan's enlightenment and its new path as a global power. And of course, the girls are really into this, even if they have no say in what's going on ultimately. And, and Russell is careful in pointing out just how much these girls want a better life, not just for themselves but for their families as well, and how appealing these ideas that the agent pitches to them are. But it's really horrifying to think that the agent's first private act with these girls is one of deception and betrayal. And we learn a little more about this tea ceremony later. And, and you know, let me tell you, it, it may not go in the direction you're thinking and, you know, the current cultural climate we live in about um, male exploitation of women at work. But it's still an awful moment for these girls, nonetheless. Well, I think it's playing on that exactly, right? That one of the things that really motivates and excites these women is that the financial issues of their families are an obstacle for them getting married, which is not something that's necessarily being presented in our sort of, you know, Disneyfied type of storytelling or, or you know romance fiction type of storytelling where what you're looking for you know is is finding your true love and settling down with that person getting a happily ever after it's also just means going out and starting your life as an actual adult right that the fate otherwise is to simply be stuck with your family as a, a type of child even as you're actually physically an, an adult right that's the fate that these women are going to have because of the poverty of their families and so being sent to the mill these these five-year contracts mean that when they're done working in the mill they will now be able to go out and start a life start an adult life by being married to someone, getting married to someone. And this private tea ceremony 
acts like it's a kind of marriage, like they're sort of marrying the agent. And in a weird sense, they they are, in fact. Right, because he's going to be controlling their bodies in some way. Um, and that is a major th- kind of theme of this story, in a sense, this, this kind of... Uh, this kind of transition of being uh, for these women where their bodies are even controlled by the business that they work for. Spoiler, though, this is uh, it's going to be some vengeance in this story. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, let's learn a little bit more about what life is like in this mill. There are two new girls here. Uh, these are sisters. They're aged 12 and 19. And they really serve as audience surrogates who, you know, need things explained to them. And so here, this is where we learn that the tea is some kind of mad science chemical that transforms people into silkworm monsters. We're not going to learn, you know, the actual like molecular makeup of this thing, where it was developed, by whom, well, maybe by whom, but how, what's going on here in terms of the actual science, we're not going to know. But we do learn how this works, or at least what it looks like anyway. The transformation is not immediate, and the full transformation actually can take as long as a month, at least that's what it seems like anyway. And so... At this point, these two new recruits are still eating human food, while everyone else at the mill is eating mulberry leaves, just like real silkworms. The food is brought to them, uh, this real food, but then also the mulberry leaves, it's brought to them by an old blind woman whom they all call the zookeeper. She never speaks with them. I mean, no matter how many questions they shout at her, she just never speaks to them. She just creepily and and silently assesses their silk, and then if it meets her approval, she slides their food through a grate in the door. So we're in a story about something awful happening to your body, and so naturally there are some light body horror details here about the silk extraction. We're going to get more later, but right now we learn that the silk comes out of their fingertips, also their palms, and that they have to or at least they should, I guess, soak their hands in hot water to soften up the skin first. They hook themselves up to the machine. Uh, Again, machine here is with a capital M, uh, just like agent. And they do one hand at a time, using the other hand to guide the silk and adjust the outflow, the output here. And it takes 12 hours or sometimes even a little bit more than that to fully extract all the silk that the woman has made overnight. And Katsune explains that when you get through with this, when you're empty, it is a huge relief. It's very uncomfortable, uh, perhaps even painful, I guess, to have this silk sitting in your belly. There are a number of ways in which this new industrialized process is an improvement on the traditional pre-industrial methods of silk cultivation in Japan. No longer do whole villages need to devote themselves to the care of silkworms and the harvesting of silkworm eggs. You don't need to collect silk cocoons and separate the silk. There's just no waste. There's no inefficiency here. There's also no risk of famine or or other types of supply problems that can happen. There's no irregularity in quality. In fact, the women here, these women who have turned into hybrid silkworm monsters... They produce incredibly high-quality silk that's very beautiful. And there's also one more advantage of doing it this way, and it is that the women produce silk that is already colored. So there's no need to dye it, which is another expense, both in terms of material and time and labor. 
I guess that's three things. So both was not the right word to use there, but it's cheaper. That's what I'm trying to say. And the other thing that's really beneficial here is that each of these women produces silk in their own unique color. Kitsune silk, for example, is translucent green, but others produce colors like blue or, or hazel and so on. Isn't industrial manufacturing just a miracle, you know? <laughs> the, the joy of thinking about a no-waste factory or repurposing waste or cheap labor, it's just, that's the real dream, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, the, I mean, some of this color stuff is, is uh, they talk about auras a little bit. You know, these, these women bring in their colors with them. We'll learn a little bit more about that. But I want to talk about the two girls who arrive here. You know, they really give us a reason to have exposition, but these girls are completely terrified also of what's going on. And they ask like pretty good questions. I think you know, one of the questions they ask is, Hey, is there a cure for all of this? And the answer to that question is really terrifying. The only cure that these women have found is to reel the silk because it's a biological necessity for these women to relieve themselves of the silk that is in their bodies. And the story will address the question of what happens if they don't, but the only relief that these women feel from their condition is to work. There's a character named Dai in this story, and she acts as a kind of, you know, den mother to all the factory girls. And she tries to console the new arrivals who are really concerned about turning into monsters. And I want to read what she says to them because I think it's really beautiful. So Dai says this to the, to the two new girls. In the end, she tells the new reelers about the Juyu, the snow monsters, snow and ice covered trees, and Zhao Anson her home. The snow monsters, Dai smiles, brushing her white whiskers, are very beautiful. Their disguises make them beautiful, but they are still trees, you see, under all that frost. And this is maybe a, a small consolation, but it's a very tender kind of parable. Yes, these women may have a different exterior than the other Japanese women in the world, but beneath it all, they are still women. I hadn't really thought about it before this comment of yours, Brandon, but there's a maybe a way in which this sensation, this relief that you get when you're empty of silk is kind of like a type of addiction, right? And so there's a sense here in which the agent, the, the, the dude who runs this mill, kind of has these women addicted to a physical sensation that they can only earn through a full day of, of hard work every single day with, with no breaks, no vacation days, and you have to live in the mill. So There's kind of a weird cyberpunk element to this too. Yeah, it's, you know, being addicted to stims or something. Right, <laughs> to, right. To get the work done or, you know, opium or something like that in the in the sex trade. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of real parallels to this story about um, the way women's bodies are commodified, in particular in labor. And uh, I think that Russell's just done something incredible here by having it focus on silk manufacturing and textile mills, which are also traditionally worked by women, um, and gives us this wholly strange look from the way we typically encounter these types of horror stories about industrialization into uh, this type of world that 
causes us to think about it in new terms. And that's really something we're going to be investigating in our discussion. Yeah, this is a topic I've really, really, really wanted to talk about. I'm going to bite my tongue here since we are having this <laughs> yes, <type of> discussion <laughs> episode. But yeah, I'm excited to dive into that because, well, we've we've read a lot of stories, the background to which is the Industrial Revolution, but we've never gotten one exactly like this that's taken this uh, this angle on it. And I'm really excited. But uh, let's return to the recap here. So everything that we've talked about so far has been really the first act of the story. And now we're going to move into the second act. And I think with some masterful uh, structure level craft here, Russell starts this off by giving us backstory about our narrator, about Kitsune. Now, as we said, the agent preys on families who are in dire straits, right? Families who've been used to money at some point, but who no longer have enough of it. Kitsune's grandfather, we learn, had been a free farmer who owned his own property. But during the industrialization, he fell into debt and became a a sharecropper on his own property. This grandfather joined a farmer's revolt with some other people who were dispossessed of their farms by the land and tax reforms of the new Meiji government. The rebellion was put down, of course, they usually are, and the grandfather hanged himself. But this didn't do anything to alleviate the debt, which simply then fell to his son, that is to say, Kitsune's father. And then when Kitsune's mother died and there was no dowry for Kitsune, her father fell ill. And this is when the agent showed up. Kitsune was rather taken with him. He's young, attractive, very Western. He's wearing a suit. He's got a parasol. He's got a cool mustache. And she wanted out of her present situation so badly that she didn't actually go discuss this with her father. You know, I said earlier that the agent always negotiates with the male guardian. Kitsune is an exception here because her father's ill. But she doesn't bring the contract to or the information about what's going on to her father to discuss it over with him. What she does is forge her father's signature on the contract. Then they go have the tea ceremony in private. And here we learn that the chemical tea is its pretty gross. And that even a sip of it usually sends the girl into convulsions. And so typically the agent actually has to force the girl to drink enough of it to ensure the transformation into the silkworm or, or you know, silkworm hybrid. And this is really violent. Most of the girls have some kind of scar from their struggle, their physical struggle with the agent who's trying to make them or not even trying, just is making them drink this thing that they don't want to drink. But this was not Katsune's experience. She just gulped the tea down in one go, which was super surprising to the agent. And this meant also that she really got a lot of the tea. And so she just passed out for two days and woke up transformed, uh, internally transformed at least, right? Some of the cosmetic changes take longer, as we learned in the first section. But this state of unconsciousness, this two-day state of unconsciousness, this spared her the awareness of the transformation. She didn't notice it was happening to her, whereas everyone else did. And, And for all the other women at the mill, this was incredibly traumatic. Kitsune has a lot of hopes and dreams and uh, a lot of sense of what the new world has to offer her. You know, she even believes the agent might marry her. And this is kind of what leads her to make these decisions. Before I talk about that, though, I want to just say that this tea, uh, I just want to read this description description of the tea ceremony here where uh, it really demonstrates what's going on with Kitsune. She says, I peered into the cup and saw there was something alive inside it, writhing, dying, a fat white keiko. I shuddered, but I didn't fish it out. What sort of tea ceremony was this? 
Maybe, I thought. The agent is testing me to see if I'm to see if I am squeamish, weak. Something bad was coming. The stench of a bad and thickening future was everywhere in that room. The bad thing was right under my nose, crinkling its little legs at me. I pinched my nostrils shut, just as if I was standing in the mud a heartbeat from jumping into the Mia River. Without so much as consulting the agent, I squinched my eyes shut and gulped. So she carries this real sense of foreboding along with this, and there's a silkworm in the teapot, and you know, you know, I, I, I try not to drink things with worms in them, um, <laughs> but Kitsune really feels she has a lot to be proud of that leads up to this moment. She can read and she can write. She thinks she will be the best and already feels she has a lot of potential to offer. And if she proves that to the agent, maybe he'll see something special in her and pay off the family debts and marry her. And who knows where this new path will lead her. But now she regrets her decisions and her pride in her abilities and education are also regretful as well. They, what, they're what led her here. This is classic hubris that we see leading to downfall and tragedy. And Kitsune wishes she had struggled against the agent, even as she knew something was wrong with the choices she was making. But the fact that she literally signed her fate away, she sold herself and didn't struggle, you know, the fact that she drank the tea down, all of these things really set Kitsune uncomfortably apart from the other girls in the factory. This is something that we're going to probably list again in our discussion episode just to make it super clear, but this is a really important part of the story. Right. All the other women are at least able to tell themselves and tell each other the story that they weren't in charge of how they got here, right? That the agent shows up, negotiates with their male guardian, and it's the male guardian who's been conned into this. And they themselves are the victims of of their guardian's failure to see that this was a terrible idea, that this was not going to be a good thing for them. Kitsune does not have that. She has only herself to blame. And that's really the the central, I think, part of her experience is that she did this to herself, or at least she feels like she did this to herself, like she's the only person she has to blame for her misfortune and feels foolish and feels bad about herself, about her nature because of that. Though, I, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's really the right way to look at this situation, but it is how she is looking at this situation. Right. And it's an important part of our character motivations and an important part of how we get to the resolution of this story as well. I also want to point out that the, you know, violence with which the agent gets the girls to the factory, the the violence that the agent uses to get them there is really devastating. He's already got the girls to agree to work at the mill, you know, through maybe no decision of their own directly, but We've already said that the agent appeals to certain ideals of the new Maishi government, the new empire that the girls are carrying as dreams. But there's an, a step that's kept from them, and it's the transformation. And the agent knows that nobody would agree to this, so he forces it. This completely strips the girls of their autonomy and also ignores if they were even you know, going to have rights or felt independent or felt like things were going to change for them. It ignores that hope. And you know, this attempt to claim rights, to say that I have rights and I'm an autonomous person, this is echoed in the farmer's revolt as well. The hope for the new government 
even destroys the livelihoods of men here, of certain men, of farmers in favor of industrialization. And Russell does a really great job of drawing these parallels, of pointing out that even when the people tried to make a change that would benefit them, just after a revolution unseated the old uh, ruling family and destroyed the aristocratic class in Japan, that this also wasn't for the people, that the people have no chance of winning even in a situation where they want to make a change that will improve their own stock in life. And I love the way that Russell parallels these ideas in this section. Ultimately, the only thing that's really changed here, at least for you know the families who've been affected by this, right? The families whose daughters are here in this mill turning into silkworm monsters, all that's really changed is who is doing the exploiting of them and and why, right? That, that's that been the big change of industrialization here as far as these families are concerned. And yeah, I know we'll talk about that more in the discussion, but it's, it's so upfront here. Uh, Russell does such a great job of telling us that part of the story. And now that we've gotten this bit of backstory about Kitsune's signing her own contract and what her tea ceremony was like, we're, we're back in the present of the narrative now. And at this point too, something is about to change. Kitsune does not sleep well. She sleeps worse than everyone else. And the others notice that she's not looking healthy at all. And then there's a change and also an accident. There's a malfunction in the machine that causes it to spin way too fast. And it tugs the silk out of Kitsune's fingers just so fast that she's dragged across the factory. And she's injured a little bit, but she's definitely in a lot of pain. But what is really distressing is that her silk has changed color from this beautiful bright green to black. Uh, It turns out that this is not just some response to the emergency. It's now something that is happening off and on. Uh, She can get a few reels of bright green silk, but mostly now her silk is black. And she wonders, is she sick? She wonders, is this normal? Is this actually going to happen to all of them? Is their silk all going to change? As you said earlier, Brandon, there's a silkworm woman here who has more or less put herself in charge as a kind of dorm mother. And she knows that Kitsune is not sleeping. And she knows that it is because Kitsune is suffering from really severe anxiety. Kitsune cannot stop replaying in her mind over and over again the moment when she signed her own contract and drank her own tea. She did this to herself and she cannot stop thinking about it. From her perspective, the others can sleep all right because they can all blame a greedy father or greedy uncle or, you know, foolish father, foolish uncle for their situation. But she only has herself to blame. Now, Dai, that's the the name of this door mother. You mentioned that earlier, Brandon. She confronts Kitsune about this and they get into a shouting match about it. And during this fight, this argument, Kitsune tells Dai that, she should just stop producing silk if it's so easy to just stop yourself from doing things, right? She wants Kitsune to stop ruminating. And a few days later, Dai tells Kitsune that she's going to take her literally. And she is actually going to try to stop producing silk. She's going to stop reeling the silk out of her. She's going to go on strike. Now, during this time, Dai also refuses to eat. And after a few days, she dies, the agent shows up now. He's, he's actually been gone for a really long time. He's been off recruiting more women, presumably. And so he shows up now and he is furious about this situation. He calls Dai a thief because she died with silk in her belly. Some of the others, 
at this moment, they actually try to grab him, but he shakes them off and, and does it with disdain, right? So they try to get out of this situation in, in some, some way, but he's able to just dismiss them, really. And he says, perhaps we can still salvage some of the silk. And then he rolls Dai's body into a sack uh, to go extract it, to go do a kind of post-mortem surgery to get the silk out of her body. And while the others are distressed at Dai's death, there's something even more distressing that this incident has demonstrated. They now know that if they don't reel, if they don't get the silk out of them, they're going to die. They'll die from this. So it means that they can never again be away from this machine for more than five days. You know, so there's, there's really nothing that they were going to do, even if they had gotten the agent at this point. And this knowledge now, this is the end of the hopes that they've had for someday getting free of this situation. Right. Resistance is utterly futile <laughs> here. You know, they, they will be assimilated into the machine. Uh, I mean, yeah, this strike really fails because of the biological need to get rid of silk. It's too overwhelming. It's too powerful. And even Kitsune here, who we think has the real motivation to strike, won't strike, in part because she thinks if more women strike and die, she'll be able to eat more food. These women are totally governed by their changing biological natures. The the hunger they feel, you know, earlier we saw the the mulberry leaves described as like death thwarting, right? All of this, this these hungers and the need for relief are too strong to overcome the biological impulses. And, you know, one other thing we should point out here, just a a small detail in the story, is that Kitsune wondered initially if her silk was going to be the color of ash, right? This is the the, word used to describe mourning very often, and Kitsune's really in mourning. So when it turns black, or when her silk turns black, this is just even more representative of the state she's in. She's past mourning. She's in like a black grief about her situation. And, uh, you know, we'll see maybe how that helps her overcome some of these odds, but it's just a a really cool detail that Russell throws into the story. Right. I mean, I'm really interested in, I don't know if it's metaphysics, really, I guess. In fact, I guess it's not. It's actually just regular physics, I suppose, <laughs> right? But, you know, how does the silk production work? What's this transformation like? Maybe we'll dig into some of that stuff in the discussion. I mean, these are questions that I don't think are answerable, which are my favorite types of questions to ask about <laughs> weird fiction stories, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's great because Russell just kind of hits it because Russell just kind of hints at them. And I don't know how like deep we'll go into this in the in the discussion um, because it's, I think, what's on the page is what's there but it's yeah there's some connection between the mental states of these women and their and their silk production it's just really terrible though to think that the owners of this factory here instruct their representatives or agents or you know zookeepers or whatever to think not about the lives of the people whose labor that they're benefiting from but only that the owners the owning class here, the capital holding class, has invested something in turning these women into laborers. And so if the women don't labor, they're thieves. They're stealing from that capital investment. And it really reinforces to these women just how dire their situation is. Even in death or resistance, they will be branded as something less than. And these women so then are literally conflated by the owning class with the product that they produce. There's no distinction between the product, the consumer good, and the person. And it's a harrowing illustration of uh, the worst parts of, you know, 
industrialization. I worked a, a job once. I won't say which job this is, uh, though I guess l- listeners who have heard me talk about my various jobs before perhaps could figure it out. But I worked a job once where uh, the first year that I worked there, of the three that I worked, we got paid lunch breaks. Like we, you know, clock, we, we didn't clock out for lunch. We just had a 30 minute lunch break and it was a paid lunch break. And then uh, after I worked there for about a year, uh, there was a change at the corporate level. And the way this was presented to us by our immediate manager was, well, if you think about it, a paid lunch break is really kind of just stealing from the company. And uh, yeah, that's exactly what this is, agent is saying here as well. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, when I heard that, it it made me want to launch a revolution as well. I didn't. I just kept working there because I needed the paycheck and I knew it was only going to be a temporary job anyway. Yeah. Meanwhile, time theft is like one of the biggest uh, problems in industrial and retail type jobs where it's like, yeah, you can't clock in more than 15 minutes before you get here. But if you can get hat here half an hour early, um, there's some stuff we need to do you to do. And then you can clock in when your shift starts 15 minutes early. We'll approve that extra 15 minutes, not the extra 30 minutes, because the spreadsheet uh, jockeys at the higher level don't want to see people working overtime because that leads to like other stuff. But we really need this work done. That's what time theft is. Time theft is not you like going to the bathroom for too long on the clock, right? <laughs> so it's just, uh, it's really funny. I guess it depends on how you look at it. But yeah, when everything aligns to uh, calculation and, you know, no matter how complicated, those guys do complicated work, the spreadsheet guys. The calculations are very well thought out, but uh, they, they sometimes ignore the person working under these conditions. And I think uh, I really like the way that Russell is pointing this out. Well, Kitsune is not going to to take this anymore. This is where we're going. We are near the end of the story here. In fact, we're really in the last the last moment. So Kitsune continues to dwell on the choices that she's made. She's still playing those scenes over and over again in her mind. She just cannot stop ruminating about it. But she's also now thinking about silkworms. She's thinking about their life cycle. What silkworms are spinning silk for to begin with? Like, why do they even do this? And of course, what silkworms are doing is making cocoons in which they will transform into moths. So she wonders, is that something that these women can do now as well? Can they transform into moths? Now, there's a girl here who grew up in a village that produces silk, and Kitsune asks her a lot of questions about the behavior of silkworms and their life cycle, and then Kitsune gets to work. She discovers that through her memories, or really maybe the way to think about this is that by using her memories in order to induce certain emotional states, Kitsune can control the color and texture of her silk, and she begins to make a black cocoon. And when she's done, she also learns how to crawl up the wall with her own stickiness. Uh, She gets to the top, and then she gets onto the ceiling beams, and she hangs her cocoon by a thread. And she discovers that it will support her weight. She can get into it and it will support her while she is dangling over the machine that rests in the middle of the room. Now, the others, they're worried about this, or at least some of them are. They don't want her to die, and they also don't want to be punished themselves if she dies. But Kitsune convinces them to join her. Kitsune is calling this, in fact, a revolution at this point. And they've got a plan. First, they stockpile extra silk so that they can have several days of their quota stored up ahead of time. 
Then they take control of the machine and they change some of its settings so that they can speed up the production of their cocoons. And that's it. At this point, their work is done and it is time for the transformation. But of course, they need time to be in their cocoons, right? There's a period during which they're going to have to be just dormant in their cocoons. And that means that they need to be free of external threats. So the final step of the plan is to take out the agent. They stop handing over silk. This brings the agent then to see what is going on, right? Where's the silk? What's the problem here? And Kitsune goes very Bond villain here. She explains <laughs> that they're going to transform in their cocoons and that they've also made a cocoon for him. And as they wrap him up in his cocoon where he is going to die while they transform, Kitsune says her name to him. But it is clear that the name, it doesn't mean anything to him. He doesn't remember her. She then says the names of all the workers, but none of these names mean anything to him either. He has forgotten all their names. And really what this means is that he has forgotten the incident that haunts Kitsune, right? Kitsune can't stop playing this memory over and over and over again in her mind, but he doesn't remember the episode at all. And that now really is it. The last line of the story is Kitsune, I repeat, closing the circle. The last thing I see before shutting his eyes is the reflection of my shining new face. These women, the reelers for the new empire, have turned their biological transformation into an advantage. They've understood the weaknesses of those who rule over them, uh, you know, which is the reliance of the factory owners on the output of these silkworms, and then turned their own perceived disadvantages into a strength. And this is, you know, the working class revolution, the real, you know, the realization that in order to, uh, you know, collectively bargain or have some sort of say or power in the conditions that you work in, you need to Show the owners that you know how to seize the means of production. But this story really goes further than that. The, these women have dismantled the means of production and they've crippled the people who own this factory. And, you know, we're going to talk about all this in our discussion episode. But, you know, as a tease, I want to point out that some of the elegance in this story is that it's a true rejection of the status quo, which is very different from the way that we hear, you know, Marxism spoken about in popular context today. And boy, is that the rage if you ever go on the internet. So, <laughs> you know, I also want to say here that I really loved this story. And even though it's openly political, it is deeply human and deeply weird and unsettling. And it allows us to empathize with all of the characters here. And these women are not heroes in the sense that they represent the high ideals of the kingdom. That's something that's also failed them. It's something that is actually teased in the first line of this story. Are these women going to be the new samurai? Instead, the story ends with the classic conundrum of revolutionary fiction, which is what happens the day after the revolution? And this answer is not given here, but that too will be something that we have to discuss. So with all those teases for our discussion episode, we're, which we're excited for you to stay tuned for, that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and all our other podcasts and creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Before we sign off, I want to say thanks one more time for the commission. I hope everyone can tell that we really love this story. I'm very excited to go have the discussion episode. So thank you so much for making this episode possible and bringing this story to our attention. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really excited for our discussion episode. And so, yeah, that is it for this episode. Next time, we will be back with the discussion episode. 
And until then, we greet you and say farewell.